This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 148 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Smart 23rd, time for second winter. Andrew Madsen. Hello, I'm enjoying the snow here. Yeah, there's definitely snow here. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. If you're wondering why I'm concurring with Andrew, we don't live that far apart. So This week we're going to talk about the Apple event that happened this week. There were some things that came through. We have yet another screen resolution to deal with, for one. Is that true? No, I don't think that's true, is it? Is it? It's a smaller phone, I just assume. Yeah, but it's the same as the iPhone 5 and 5S, which everybody was already supporting anyway. So. Oh, okay. Never mind then. I'm only mostly dumb, not all dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Chuck's defense, he already told us that he missed the Apple event. I did. I was at Mountain West Ruby Conference on Monday and Tuesday, so I hadn't gotten around to going and actually watching the thing. So I don't understand why they're putting out a 16 gigabyte phone. Yeah, neither do I. And the the crazy thing is that on the iPad Pros, they have now have a 256 gigabyte option, which is the first time they've had that uh, oh. big of a space for iOS. So now there's a 16 gig iOS devices and 256 gig iOS devices being sold. And the thing that's crazy to me is I have a original iPhone, the first generation iPhone that has 16 gigs. Uh So, I mean, it was the top end option at the time, but still, I can't believe that you can buy a phone with the same amount of storage as an original iPhone. This is the ghost of upgrade headaches of the future. We're going to have to support this thing forever because no one's going to update the iOS version if they put more than like two photos on it. I know, right? The thing that I don't understand, I mean, I had a 32-gig iPhone 5. I have a 64-gig iPhone 6 Plus. And on both devices, I will admit that I've run out of space on them. Yeah, I actually have a 128-gig phone and have for the last quite a few generations, since as long as they've offered it, I think. Yeah, I'm wishing that I had gotten one. But, you know, such is life. So, yeah, so I just I didn't get it. I know that some people like the smaller form factors, and the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6 Plus were just too big for them, but... Yeah, I mean, come on, put some real space in it. I guess you can get a 64-gig one if you want. Yeah, I actually, I'm one of the people who does like the small form factor, and uh, I mean, we'll see. If I had not already gotten a 6S, I would actually strongly consider this new SE, iPhone SE, just because I do like the small size. So one thing that I'm wondering, though, is that, the so the iPhone, what are they calling it? iPhone SE? SE. SE. One thing I'm wondering is, does it have the, what do they call it, Force Touch, 3D Touch? No, it does not have 3D touch. So is it a step backwards technologically? I mean, is it just a re-release of the iPhone 5? No, it's actually... uh, So I guess, I mean, now we're just diving into the event, but the iPhone SE is apparently uh, essentially the same internals as the iPhone 6S, meaning CPU, you know, amount of RAM, all of that. So graphics, it's it's, performance-wise, it's identical to the 6S except that they do not have 3D touch and they are using the first generation touch ID sensor. So the fingerprint sensor on the home button is the first generation, which was in the iPhone 5S and iPhone 6. Okay. It works just as well. It's just slower. 
Yeah, I mean, I mine, mine is a 6 Plus, so it's got that sensor in it. Yeah, but if you try a 6S or a 6S Plus, the sensor has gotten so fast that you really can't tap the home button without it reading your finger. So, like, I have a, I have a 6 here. If I just tap the button, it comes up the lock screen, and it did not read my fingerprint. Mm, on a 6S, I can tap it quick, and it already read my finger, just, like, as quick as I can tap it. So it's cool that it's fast, but some people actually complain about it because it makes it essentially makes it so you cannot do a quick tap on the home button just to see your lock screen to see what time it is or look at your notifications or anything, you know? Get one of your kids to do it. Yeah, get one of your kids or use a finger that you haven't programmed into Touch ID, or, of course, you can always push the power button on the side, but... Anyway, so there, there, there's some argument to be made that the slower Touch ID sensor is actually a feature. I also heard that they... Is there anything else to say about this? I mean, does, well, it, does um, it change much for the developer experience? No, I don't think it changes anything for developers. We're already all supporting iPhone 5 and 5S anyway, so screen size is the same as those. Yeah, and the hardware is nicer, so if anything, you have better resources to run on. Yeah, it's a good thing. I mean, it, it brings up the sort of... It's going to bring up the average performance of iPhones, right? Because the cheap phone now performs as well as the expensive phone. Do you think people are going to upgrade? So people have been holding on to their iPhone 4 or iPhone 3 forever? Yeah, I'm, my impression of the cheap phone, which previously was the iPhone 5C and then the 5S, it was the 5S until a few days ago when the SE came out. You know, like my in-laws, my, my mother-in-law has one, and she always has whatever the cheap phone is. So she gets her upgrade every two years, but she doesn't want to pay any money, so she goes into the cell phone store and... Oh, okay. Let's get the cheap phone. So next time her upgrade is up, she'll probably go get an iPhone SE, you know, where she's using, I think, a 5 or a 5C. She might even be using a 4S for all I know right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly who they're targeting with that phone, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, in addition to people who just want a smaller one. The other thing is, is that for the most part, the people who are buying the newer phones buy the newer phones. And the people who are, you know, buying the cheap phones are buying the cheap phones. So you don't see a lot of increased iPhone sales year over year anymore, especially in the U.S. and other countries where we've kind of got smartphone saturation. You know, you have a few people still trickling in from the feature phones, but for the most part, it's not. So I'm I'm also wondering if this is going to affect their bottom line this year, seeing more people come in and buy these phones instead of the others. I don't know. I think it's the cheapest phone they've ever done. It's three ninety nine unsubsidized, which I think I, I, I'll pro- I'm probably wrong, but I think that's $100 cheaper than the previous cheap unsubsidized phone, so that's a, something of a difference. But I think more importantly, the cheap phone is now not a crappy low-performance phone, mm-hmm. which it always has been before. I think, yeah, people who have smartphones have their smartphones, but I think it's a chance for people to switch over from Android and we have a good-performing iPhone. People might want the iPhone, but not want to pay for it or not want the old right. version. If it performs well, then people you know, this might be a chance to switch. How does this rank against some of the top-end Android phones? Do you guys know? Because I don't. I don't know at the moment, because I don't really keep up with what the Android phones are doing. And they, you know, they release... There's a new Android phone coming out every other day. When the 6S was released last fall, I think it was the fastest or basically tied for fastest phone available. And that's pretty typical. When an actual new iPhone generation comes out, it's the fastest phone you can buy because Apple's doing so well with their chip design now. You know, they're ahead of everybody in terms of designing their CPUs, but they only release a new phone once a year, so they give everybody a year to sort of catch up and pass them. Um, we're kind of in the middle of that now, so my guess is that there are some Android phones that are faster than the than this new SE and the 6S, but I think probably not by a lot. I think it's probably up there in terms of performance. 
Anything else we want to talk about with the SE before we move on to something else? Yeah, I wanted to mention that I, I actually really like the name iPhone SE. And the first thing I thought of when I heard it was, you know, the Mac SE, which is a Mac model from the 80s. And I don't know, I just like this little, it seemed like a little homage to an old Mac. And I, I, Apple doesn't really very often pay tribute to some of their stuff they did before, especially when Steve Jobs was not around. But Phil Schiller said that SE stands for special edition and it's a, it's an homage to that Mac SE that they released in the 80s. So that was kind of cool and fun. Cool. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about, and of course, this is just me being a news junkie, I guess, but uh, Tim Cook mentioned the FBI case. Yeah, that was one of the first things they talked about. And they restated, reiterated that they were standing on the side that they've chosen, which is, you know, keep our data safe. It was good to see him stand up and actually restate that that they're going with it. I'm curious, where where do you two come down on this? Because, I mean, Part of me, just to give some context, from what I've been hearing, part of me is hearing that uh, the FBI wants to put a backdoor into the encryption, which, of course, everybody who knows stuff about tech knows that's a horrible idea. And then I'm also hearing that instead what they want is they want Apple to create a firmware that can be signed to only run on that iPhone so that they can basically brute force the password to get the data. And I'm a little bit on the fence with that. I don't think it's fair to forcibly make Apple a consultancy to crack phones. But I also think that, you know, there may be something on that phone that keeps us safer. I'm just not willing to give up security entirely in order to get some modicum of, oh, we can go arrest this other guy before he does something bad. Yeah, without letting the discussion get too into politics, personally, while I won't claim to be a technical expert on all all aspects of this because, you know, I'm not a security expert, I am 100% on Apple's side. And I don't, if I had my way, the government would get nothing. And I don't, I'm just not, I'm personally not very convinced by the argument, well, we're going to stop terrorists, so you got to do what we say. Because you can use that argument anytime the government wants something, you know, wants to increase its power. Well, terrorists are at stake, and it really bothers me, and I don't like it. So I'm happy that the FBI ended their, whatever, their lawsuit, and I am interested to hear what happens next. Because I know Apple's, Apple's, you know, probably going to want to, f- want to find out how they claim that they came up with an alternate way to get into the phone and get the data out of it. But they're not saying what that is other than that it was a third party that came to them. And, you know, and I'm sure Apple's going to be very interested to know the details of that. And the government's going to try to keep it secret. And I'm not actually completely convinced that it's true. I think it may just be a strategic thing where the government decided they were sort of losing this battle and they want to save it for another day. So this was a, a way out for them to save face claim they're going to be able to get into it anyway. You know? Yeah, I didn't hear that they had suspended the case, but that does make me happy because then, you know, like like you said, using the argument that we're going to catch terrorists isn't exactly, I mean, you, you've got to have some solid, we know this information is on the phone or we very highly suspect this information is on the phone and it's going to directly lead to the capture of these people. But they're totally speculating on what's on the phone. And I don't see that as a strong case for opening up phones. And it it does put a burden on Apple as well because one of Apple's selling points is their security. And even knowing that Apple can cir- circumvent your security is, I think, a blow to that reputation. So, Yeah, I, I really like at least thinking, hoping that it's true that Apple cannot access my data even if they want to. Yeah. Jane, we didn't hear from you. Where are you at? Yeah, no, I stand with Apple. I think, you know, it's easy to make a case that, you know, terrorists are bad guys who got the data, but you know, there's, a, there's a lot of bad people trying to get data too. You have mafia, Russian mob, you have 
totalitarian governments all over the world that can get at data. So, you know, it's easy to make the case that, you know, just this one thing, just for these terrorists. And who wants to stand behind a terrorist? No one. But once you do that, then it's like, okay, well, how about drug dealers? Okay, and drug dealers, then you can go after run-the-mill criminals. And you know, who's going to defend these people? Well, to just you make the stand at the first thing. That's just uh, what I believe. And I think security is important. And it's important for people fighting for freedom in places where they're under oppressive regimes. You know, bad people can get, can get at the state too. It's not just the good guys. Mm-hmm. So I, I stand with Apple on this. So one thing that I'm really curious about, because, you know, even though the FBI basically backed out and said, no, we're not going to press this issue. I'm curious if something like this did go through. Do you think developers of specific apps would then go out of their way to make their apps data encrypted so that not even Apple could get to it? If you're selling point security, I, I think you would. There's not a huge market for that, but there's significant people, significant amount of people that would care about having their data safe from whoever, you know, whatever they're doing. So I think there's a market for it. Most people don't care. And I see generationally people care less and less about security. So it's kind of a, a losing battle, at least in the public perception. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of Apple's points has been that the technology to do strong encryption is already out there and it's public. And so it, it actually, in terms of making it so bad guys cannot keep their data secret doing this to apple won't really help right it, they'll they'll just they'll just get an app or get other software that allows them to do the strong encryption that they are currently relying on apple to do and meanwhile the millions of regular users who can't be bothered to do that will have their data exposed to malicious people yeah the other thing that i see is that if you make apple circumvent their security even in this one case the worry is is that somebody's going to figure out how to basically get a hold of that code you know, even if Apple has to sign the firmware, there's still one step closer to being able to do it to other phones. And, you know, once that technology's out, then nobody's data is safe. And I think there are legitimate cases where people have a right to privacy. And, you know, so circumventing it in this one case, I think, opens up a lot of dangerous possibilities for that. Yeah, that know-how would be worth millions, possibly billions. You know, someone's going to get that data if they yeah. want it. So I also heard related to this that you can now write encrypted notes that you have to unlock with your thumbprint or whatever. Yeah, that's new in 9.3. I thought that was interesting. And it's it's an interesting segue, I guess, from the discussion over security to the discussion over iOS 9.3 is that there's now a second layer, so to speak, of security, even though it's the same security that gets you into the phone. But you have to unlock and then unlock again to get it. Do you think they're going to open that up so that people can write apps so that their apps can have data secured by Touch ID? In other words, if I unlock my iPad and hand it off to somebody and then they try and open up, I don't know, super secret client data app, you know, will developers eventually be able to secure that data by Touch ID or password or something else? Um, That exists now. So if you go to Mint, if you hand your iPhone to someone and you go to Mint, it'll ask for your thumbprint. Oh, yeah, my bank does this. So I, I can't remember exactly the, the name of the framework, but uh, this exists, and you can put that in your apps now. Yeah, it's been around for a while. One password uses it. Um, yeah. I think I think they one added it. I haven't turned it on. But. Yeah, LastPass does it as well. I just hadn't. I just didn't think it through. I don't know why. So Were there any about- major things in iOS 9.3, or is it just kind of run-of-the-mill stuff with maybe a few tweaks and security fixes? It was a fairly fair, you know, semi-major release. Yeah, I was pretty excited about the the new Night Shift because I've been a big user of Flux or Flux, which will uh, when su- your, the sun goes down in your area, it'll remove the blue light from your display, so it's less harmful in your eyes. Um, some studies have shown that it kind of reduces uh, having the bright lights. The harsh white lights can 
decrease the melatonin that your body naturally produces when the sun goes down. So it makes it harder for you to go to sleep. And I've been using Eflux for a while, and it, I really enjoy it. So I've been wanting this for Apple, and they actually released a Eflux. I don't know how to say it. Uh, it's Flux. 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 Flux released an app that you could load outside the App Store once Apple opened up that functionality, and Apple shut them down pretty quick before I ended up doing it. But this is something I was on the fence of jailbreaking for, just to get, just if you're reading something late at night, you know, it's nice to not have those bright lights, because I like to sleep. Sleep is good. So I was pretty happy about that. I, I haven't updated to 9.3 yet. I was waiting for people to figure out if things are going to explode, and so far they haven't, so... I'll probably do that pretty quickly, but I'm pretty happy about the night shift. Is that an available update now, or is it still in beta? came out on Monday, the day they had the event. Okay, so my phone will prompt me sometime soon. Yep. So another thing that was added to 9.3 that has not gotten a lot of press, but I think will become more important in the future, is that there's some new support for color profiles. And maybe this, maybe it's not fully done in 9.3. I should have looked into the details of this before I brought it up. But the new 9.7-inch iPad Pro has what they're calling a true tone screen. And uh, I think it's their first step toward legitimate real color handling for, for iOS devices, which is something, of course, Macs have had forever, but it will make iOS devices a more appropriate tool for graphics professionals, photographers, filmmakers, that kind of thing. And some of that is going to require developer developers to, to support as they write those kinds of apps. I never thought about that being a problem to me at my iPad with the white, but I, it's one of the things like once you see it, you'll probably get it right away. So I, so is I'm this not... on iPhones too then? Oh, yeah, uh, well, the Pro is, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, the, the underlying support for it, of course, is in iOS now, but the only hardware that has this new screen is the 9.7 inch iPad Pro. So, which is, which is actually an interesting point. We haven't talked about this 9.7 inch iPad Pro at all yet, but it's one of the other big, big announcements of the event. But there are two areas where it's actually better than the, the 13 inch iPad Pro, and that is the screen and the camera. Oh, really? Because usually when they scale something down, like I remember when they scaled down the iPad to the iPad Mini, you originally couldn't get it with a Retina screen and a few other things. So I find it interesting that when they scaled down the iPad Pro, it actually got some nicer features on it. Yeah, it's half the RAM, though, so it does have one downside. But do you really feel that, or I guess it depends on the app? Well, it's the iPad Pro, so in theory you're running Pro apps, and more RAM is better. How does it compare in size and weight to the iPad Air? I haven't looked at weight, but it's exactly the same size. Right, and it has the, I'm looking at a little rundown here, it has the same four speakers, and you can use the Apple Pencil on it. Yeah, and it has a new, um, they made a keyboard for it, just like the iPad the big iPad Pro yeah. keyboard is smaller, of course. It says it weighs under a pound. 0 0.96 pounds for the Wi-Fi model. Huh. I'd really be interested to see what use I could put it to, but when I originally bought an iPad, like a full-size iPad, of course, granted, it was the first iPad, I just didn't find that much use for it. I read a lot on my iPad, but I'm I'm really quite intrigued by the Apple Pencil and the, some of the capabilities that probably opens up. I saw a demo, probably pick it, but I saw a demo of a... 3D modeling app that is designed to work on the iPad Pro and in fact requires the iPad Pro. You can't, you can run it as a viewer, but the full featured app will only work on a device that supports an Apple Pencil. And it looks really cool and well done. So I hope that the powerful device combined with the new input method continues to spur developers to create really good stuff. Of course, the open question is, is Apple going to fix some things so that it's actually possible for people to make money doing that or not? Yeah, and I'm also really curious if you can do 3D modeling on the iPad Pro. Can you hook that up to a 3D printer? Because that would be really cool. 
I don't know if anybody's doing that now, but I don't see why it should be technically impossible. So is there anything else in iOS 9.3 or the iPad Pro that should be discussed? Because it sounds like, other than the size and the difference in RAM, it's got pretty much feature parity with the iPad Pro. They didn't really add a whole lot to it. Uh, yeah, it's it's basically an iPad Pro shrunk down to the same size as you know, previous iPads. I'm really excited about it. The iPad Pro was a little bit big and a little bit expensive for me, but I've been wanting a new iPad. Well, what is your current model? I'm just curious. I have an iPad 3, which is the first Retina iPad, but it's the same performance specs essentially as the iPad 2, so it's really slow. And I have an iPad Mini, the first generation, which is also essentially the same hardware as an iPad 2, so it's also very slow. So right. I think I'm I have an iPad Mini 3. And it, it runs pretty well, and I do reading and stuff on it, but I don't really feel the need to get something new to replace it because it does what I want. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I've got my iPad 4. I've had for a number of years. And like, new iPad. Yeah, that's great. You know, it works for what I use it for. And actually, I use my phone for reading a lot of stuff that I did with my iPad before. I think I've gotten more used to the small factor. Interesting thing about the Apple Pencil is like, when I try to take an iPad like to a conference or a talk or something in, take notes, and I bought a pencil, not a real fancy one, but uh, that would work with a screen, and you know, it was just a complete failure. So taking notes was, was a nightmare. So it's interesting to see if the iPad Pro will become more useful for things like that, you know, just jotting down notes. Yeah, the only other thing I see on the iPad Pro that really does appeal to me is that when I travel, I like to download a bunch of movies, and then when I'm in the hotel room at night and I can't sleep, because inevitably the first night in the hotel room I can't sleep, I'd like to have something with the four speakers in it and the nicer screen to actually play a movie but other than that i yeah if if they could do note taking though where it could take my semi-intelligible scrawl and turn it into something that i could you know turns it into actual text that would be cool and the technology to do that is out there but i've just found it to be not worth it you know it doesn't feel like pen and paper which is great but at that point then you have to go through the hassle of transferring it to your digital stuff so you can get at it so Note-taking has been kind of disappointment so far, but hopefully that can improve. Yeah, the other thing that I've heard, though, is that if you have the Apple Pencil and you rest your hand on the screen, then it does some weird multi-touch stuff. That's not what I've heard. Oh, really? Apple actually really emphasized that in this event, because I don't think they talked about it when they initially announced the iPad Pro, and people were saying that, but the Pro is supposed to have excellent palm rejection. Oh, nice. That would be cool. If you have not tried out the Apple Pencil, you do kind of owe it to yourself. Go down to the Apple Store and play with one because it's really well done. That's not a bad idea because then you can fire up the Notes app and just start writing and see what you get. I also heard stuff about the Apple Watch. Oh, yeah. Tons of new bands. Bands. I heard they lowered the price. I think that's it. I think you covered it. Woo! Chuck nailed it. So yeah, the cheaper price, I mean, at Apple Watch is pretty expensive for a watch that doesn't do a whole lot. People use it for notifications and some exercise stuff, but the apps are not that compelling at this point. I like the, the baseball app, the Major League Baseball app, but that's about it. I use it to kind of interact with the phone and get messages. But so getting it into a cheaper price point gets it on more wrists, even though it's, they mentioned it is the number one selling smartwatch out there. So it's becoming more of a thing. More people will be buying it, which is good for all of us, I guess. I think um, Chuck definitely did hit it with, they made, they came out with new bands and made it cheaper. Uh, they only made the sport model cheaper. It's $50 cheaper. All the other models stayed the same. And, and new bands are nice. It's not the first time they've released new bands. But if there was something kind of interesting about this, it's that they did not announce anything else. And the, the Apple Watch is now a year old, and they did not update the hardware. 
which is something people were talking a lot about when the watch was first announced because it seemed hard to believe that Apple would expect people to pay $600 or even, you know, $10,000 for an Apple watch and then have it be obsolete a year later and they're supposed to buy a new one. I was a little glad to see that Apple did not do that. You know, for all I know, this fall they'll come out with a new one. But if the upgrade cycle is not every year like it is with a phone, that's good enough for me. All right, should we keep pushing along? I hear there's news about Apple TV. Well, that could be considered part of the 9.3 update, although, you know, it didn't really get the same features, but they released an OS update for the Apple TV that includes uh, some Siri enhancements. Um, I think the big one that everybody was excited about was that they added Siri dictation, so when you have to type things in, including passwords, you no longer have to scroll through the horrible, you know, on-screen keyboard with the remote. You can now just uh, cater it into the microphone. So how does this work with hard passwords, capital letters, dollar signs? I have, yeah, I wondered about that. I have not tried it. And then the other thing that's funny is they've got, you know, the, in the UI, just like all password entry UIs, they use the little dots instead of actually showing your password to keep people from looking over your shoulder. Seems a little bit uh, useless if you're saying the password out loud. <laughs> capital A, one. Do you ha- yeah, with case sensitivity, I mean. Well, the existing Apple TV shows the letter as you press it. So you can, if you were looking over the shoulder, you could see what they're typing in. True. iOS device, you know, iPhones do that too. That's part of the normal secure UI text field thing. But I just thought it was sort of funny. The other, they did, they did actually add Bluetooth keyboard support. That's another thing they added. So. Oh, nice. That's, that's a nice thing. Well, I can see that I've been wanting to build an Apple TV app for a while. And what I've been thinking is that it would be nice to put something up there so that I could have different, I don't know, like different shows for uh, devchat.tv and so people could actually search but sometimes the dictation search is hard and sometimes we have guests with funny last names or first names and so it's hard for people to actually say something that Siri's going to pick up and go oh you mean this episode but if you know how it's spelled or you have some idea it'd be nice if people could just effectively select the search box and then type in and it'd also be nice if you were typing in a password yep I don't know how many people, though, are actually going to bother to get a Bluetooth keyboard and pair no. it. I fully accept that when it comes to technology, I'm a total weirdo. Somebody, I think it was, uh, I think it was Craig Federighi when he was on the talk show, John Gruber's podcast a few weeks ago. He talked about how they could, I can't remember now the details, but they were looking at metrics, you know, analytics, and they found that the only time people wanted a Bluetooth keyboard was when, or the only time people tried to pair a Bluetooth keyboard was during WWDC. And so to the old Apple TV. And so, it was clear that the only people who cared about putting a pairing a Bluetooth keyboard with their Apple TV were developers, which is a <laughs> tiny part of their market, but they still are, you know, throwing us a bone. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that if you type in like, or if you have an app that puts up like a, a dashboard or something, it'd be nice to be able to control that with the keyboard because the remote's yep. a little bit restrictive when it comes to its capabilities. And then, yeah, Siri search sounded cool. And I actually, I was at a neighbor's house. Uh, we had a get together and we were watching NCAA and the NCAA app where you could switch between the games and stuff. That was really cool. But that wasn't something they really announced. I just thought it was interesting with the Apple TV, what the capabilities were. Yeah. To be honest, I wasn't paying super close attention to any of that. I don't follow sports at all and I like my Apple TV, but that whole event was not as exciting as some that I've watched. <laughs> well, I don't really follow college basketball to be specific in the U.S., but my church group, the men's group at church, they pulled together a, a bracket, and so I filled out a bracket. And At this point, I think I'm losing miserably, but, you know, it was fun to go over and just see what was going on. 
I was much more interested in, oh, there's an app for that than the, the actual game. Anything else that was interesting that they talked about? Uh, yeah, CareKit was a big thing that they announced. So CareKit is sort of a follow-on to ResearchKit, which they announced last year. And if you remember, ResearchKit is an open-source framework for that helps um, medical researchers build iPhone apps that help them do medical research studies. And I think that was, at the time, that was a really big kind of crazy announcement because the whole project was on GitHub and Apple was accepting pull requests. And it was before Swift was open source, it was the first time Apple had done, you know, a real all-in open source project. Now we're all used to that because Swift is open source and it's on GitHub and everything. But CareKit is sort of a follow-on to that. It's the same sort of thing, but it's to help people write apps that are for, rather than medical research studies, they're actually to help people manage their care, you know, of, of various problems like they talk, talk about people. Um, when, when you get dis- discharged from the hospital after surgery, right now you get a piece of paper that has sort of the list of medications you're supposed to take and any exercise you're supposed to do, restrictions on you know things you shouldn't do, whatever, and it's just a piece of paper, and people don't really um, adhere to it very well. And so with CareKit, you could write an app where the doctor sends you home with this app, and it helps you remember to take your medication at the right times and gives you instructions on what you're supposed to be doing and not doing during the day to recover and whatever. And hopefully that will lead to better participation rates. So I'm just glad to see Apple continuing to do something, which, you know, I'm sure it's good for the iOS ecosystem. It gets people using iPhones and and iPads and stuff, but it also just seems like they're truly motivated by sort of making the world better and helping people and the whole thing's open source and it's cool. It's a cool project. And definitely this is something that's been a problem in the healthcare industry. Like a doctor will prescribe something, you know, if you came out of knee surgery, you do exercises, you take some pills, Mm -hmm. people don't follow up. They just, they have other things to do. They forget about it. They took the pain pills so it doesn't hurt so bad, and they kind of forget about things. Um, this is a good way. And this is something that a number of startups have tried doing to try and increase this because, you know, if you don't take care of yourself after surgery, you have to go back in and do some more work. Your insurance company's not happy. Um, it's a it's a problem all around. So if people can go and do what the doctor tells them to do, the doctor can keep tabs on it, that's a huge win. That can really drive down costs. So it's a really valuable proposition. So it's it's good to see this supported because starting from ground zero trying to go into apps like this or a doctor sell to a clinic it's been tough because clinics and doctors are kind of in the stone age with a lot of technology but this could kind of move a little bit closer where it's more comfortable and we can build more apps like this well and the other thing that i see is that if you have some kind of complication that you can you know you can report it and say you know i'm feeling lightheaded and then the doctor can basically say well that's a common symptom so don't worry about it or they can say Hey, well, that means that you might have some kind of internal something or other. And, you know, they can, they can put the thing up there and make it work. So I, I really like the idea behind a lot of the initiatives here. So yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to see what comes from this. Anything else? I like the little intro they gave. I wondered if, um, if they would say anything. April 1st is the 40th anniversary of the founding of Apple. We started out the event with a little video uh, about that. that traced the history of I mean it was it was actually mostly just text, but it traced the history of Apple through its products, starting with the Apple One all the way up until today. I'm glad they did that. I would have liked a picture of, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in the garage or something like that, but at least they mentioned it. Yeah. There was no one more thing. So <laughs> I'm very pleased about that after some recent thirty minute boring Eddie Q dancing to bad music. One more things. Nice. So we covered it. Should we get to picks? Sounds good to me. All right. Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? All right. I'm going to do one pick, 
And I mentioned earlier, I was a fan of Flux and I, I run it on OS X and I'm happy to see the night shift happening with iOS. But if you're watching TV or something, you know, you don't really get the same effects. And I've noticed it. If I, you know, turn off the screens at a certain time, an hour or two before I go to bed, I do sleep better and I get to sleep better. But if you are watching TV, you can get orange light goggles and seems a little weird, but I have them at home. My wife bought a couple of cheap ones, you know, inexpensive ones, and they work, they work pretty well. I mean, it's not going to be a major difference, but it's noticeable. So I swear um, these orange goggles that kind of block the blue light. So if you're watching TV, you know, close to bedtime, uh, the effect is not as much. So I'm able to get to sleep a little bit better. So I'm, I'm a fan. I'm out. Nice. Andrew, what are your picks? Got a few picks today. Um, I'll start with a blog post about Swift that by somebody named Andy, Andy Hope. Andy with two Y's, which is an interesting spelling. Anyway, this um, came out today, and it's kind of been making the rounds, but I like it. Uh, it's called, actually, Chris Latner tweeted it. That's how I found it. But it's called Swift Selector Syntax Sugar. One of the things that we really didn't even touch on, which we probably should have, was that uh, with the release of iOS 9.3 on Monday, Xcode 7.3 was also released, and that includes Swift 2.2. Just the first official release of Swift that includes contributions from the community. One of the things that changed in Swift 2.2 is that instead of passing in strings for object, in, you know, for APIs that take an Objective C selector, instead of passing in a string, there's some new syntax in Swift for that, where you do pound selector and then parentheses and the name of the, the function, and it's good. It's it's type safe now, and the compiler can check it, but it's a little bit unwieldy and long, and hard to type and hard to read. And so this blog post is about this guy Andy's solution for that, where he does something that's pretty cool and elegant so that you can um, greatly simplify that that syntax so that it becomes very nice and readable and uh, concise. My next pick is something that Chuck reminded me of as we were talking. It's, uh, it's a box that is called the Olo, and I think they're doing a crowdfunding campaign that's still going, a Kickstarter project. Uh, but anyway, the, the thing's supposed to be $99, and it's a 3D printer that you stick your smartphone in and your smartphone actually becomes part of the 3D printer, which is kind of crazy to me. So essentially your smartphone goes under the bed of the printer and then they use the light from your phone's screen to harden resin. So it's not a, it's not the kind of 3D printer that squirts out melted plastic. It's the kind where they use light to cure resin selectively. Anyway, you were talking about hooking up an iPad to a 3D printer. This is not quite that, but still 3D printing meets iOS and mobile devices, which is kind of cool. And then along those lines, something I also mentioned, my last pick, is an app called Shaper 3D. And it's a 3D modeling app that is specifically for iPad Pro. I have not used it because I don't have an iPad Pro. But I have been doing some 3D modeling fairly seriously recently, uh, which is new to me. And I think there is a whole lot of room for improvement in 3D modeling software UI, especially for new people, for beginners. They look like they have done a really good, thoughtful job of making a, a touch-controlled um, 3D modeling program that, that takes advantage of the Apple Pencil. So I'm excited to try this out if and when I get an iPad Pro. Until then, they've got a video. It's pretty cool. So those are my picks. That sounds awesome. Um, I'm going to just do a couple of quick picks. Um, I was at Mountain West Ruby Conference, like I said. It was a lot of fun. Uh, there was a talk there by Jameis Buck. If you don't know who he is, he's been pretty involved in the Ruby community, uh, not so much in the mobile development communities. But he gave a talk about burnout that I actually missed. And as people filled me in, it filled me in on exactly where I'm at these days. So I'm just going to pick taking a break 
Probably not going to get one this week. Probably not going to get one next week because we're going to be at Build Conference and then I'm going to Las Vegas for other another conference. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting a break. But that's just something to keep in mind if you are unhappy with where you're at or you just, you know, you're experiencing feelings or other things where you think you should be, you know, maybe feeling better about things or different about things. Just go out and take a break. Just find some time and take a break. I'm probably going to take Friday off, actually, uh, just to get a little bit of a break. But other than that, I just don't think I'm going to get a long enough break to completely recharge. And it's kind of painful. So anyway, maybe we should actually do an episode on burnout. I don't know. But yeah, so that's one pick. And then I'm also going to pick Facebook groups. A lot of people seem to be using them lately. I used to really hate them. But it's been a really great way to connect with people. So yeah, I really like Facebook groups. There's actually a Facebook page for this podcast. And if you want to go check it out, I think it's facebook.com slash ifreaks. Don't quote me on that. I'll get the right link in the show notes so you can actually just go to ifreakshow.com and find it there. But yeah, those are my picks. So one more thing to put out there real quick. This episode will probably come out on March 30th or 31st. In fact, um, I'll just make a note to Mandy to make it come out on the 30th. The reason that I want to do that is because we are going to do a meetup on the 30th. I'm going to be calling the restaurant today and making the reservation. It's uh, I'm going to try and do it at House of Shields, which is a place that Pete Hodgson recommended to me that's relatively close to the conference venue. He said it's close enough to walk far enough away to where nobody else is going to book a party there, which sounds good to me. And he says they have great food and great alcohol if you're if, if that's your scene. So looking forward that's, to meeting That's home. one of Pete's favorite spots in San Francisco. He's made that pick a number of times. Yeah. So he's, he's a big fan. I like it too. Good, good place. Good cocktails if you like that sort of thing. I'm excited about this. Is Pete going to be there? Yeah, he said he was going to be there. Nice. So Pete will be there. Uh, you might have to put up with some JavaScript people, but because uh, I'm doing JavaScript Jabber meetup at the same time, but we'll make we'll make them sit at their own table. <laughs> yeah. Put up a barricade, maybe. Yeah, I don't know where I'll sit then. But anyway, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. Really love meeting people. So if you're listening to this the day it comes out, which is a day early then, you know, by all means, come out and beat us. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we'll we'll wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.